This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast, and this is part two of our foil boogaloo. So today, now that, you know, episode one was basically the history of foils, how they evolved, everything else, we're just going to dig into our spec strategies when we spec and what do we look for in a foil spec uh pretty basic and we each have pretty different approaches to it as well so let's get started all right so uh as you mentioned we have different approaches and a lot of times uh it comes down to between the two of us when we seem to spec um for me not in general just in foils for me, I like to wait until a card kind of proves itself before I move in on foils. So a good example of this is Wild Defiance from Avacyn Restored years ago at a modern PT on day one when I watched it do well on camera and that card ran a rough shot over a format that was full of burn. I immediately moved in on foil Wild Defiance and, you know, crushed it there. Similarly, when I mentioned... Um, the oh I can't think of it now from New Phyrexia the exile creature that adds a green mana the, the uh, elvish spirit guide from that set Chancellor of the Tangle yeah Chancellor that one yeah, the Chancellor of the Tangle uh, I went on in on foils because I expected the Neo brand deck to pop off based on what was happening on Moto so I kind of look for uh, a little bit of a proving ground when it comes to a card pedigree. Uh, one uh, more recently that I just picked up on is uh, Helix Pinnacle from uh, Mystery Boosters because it only comes in yeah. foil, and people were charging set non-foil prices for the foil version. That card has a pedigree in EDH, so I just moved in uh, on that. So that's kind of my my timing overall. There, I think when we discussed Simic Ascendancy as a card to spec on, I moved in on foils there, and I think I mentioned that as well. And that kind of plays into it as well. I waited a while on Simic Ascendancy. I watched the playability increase on EDH. You know, it just kind of moved into the format a little bit, and prices had remained fairly stable for a while, so I waited for that. I don't just kind of, like, shoot at the hip because I've been burned before. And where I got burned, and the lesson I learned was actually around the uh, cons of Tarkir uh, pre-release. Because at that point, they were doing any card as a pre-release promo. That's where it started. And my mm -hmm. thought was, okay, if you're going to foil a card, then the pimp version of a foil card from a set is going to be the pre-release version with the date stamp. And I didn't seek out dig-through times like that, but I picked them up it through trade naturally. So I didn't get burned from cash, I just got burned from stock. And that never kind of picked up. And that very much soured me on the idea overall of pre-release promos as a way to kind of spec over time. Just because of what, you know, they they represent. And it's, for some reason, people it seems like people feel like there's just a glut of pre-release promos or they just d dislike the date stamp on them when they can get the set foil with, without. And Bam. I misinterpreted that logic early on, and had I waited, I would have seen that happen. So I've kind of learned over time from my own mistakes 
that I want to wait for something to be proven a little bit so I have more data in front of me and then I can make an educated decision based on that. So as an aside to that and approving my point of when I believe in specking on foils, uh, that logic is wrong. There's fewer date stamped ones, so it is objectively better. Finance doesn't bear that out, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to specking on foils, I just like shiny things. So here's some June 2 stakes, Brink of Madness, and Planar Collapses. Yeah. One of us is what a is not Yes. <laughs> Clearly, and I even said that. Uh, what you don't see is a stack of over 150 foil sarkins on ceilings because I'm getting burned on those as we speak. Yeah. I generally, when it comes to foils, look for less of a proving ground in terms of play. I look more for market trends. And okay. one of the things that's, you know, my big burning on that has been standard foils. Uh, when Chandra yeah. TOD first dropped, I was like, this is great. Card's worth a million dollars. Let's get it. Nobody wanted it. So I would sit there with like six of these in a case and maybe sell one a whole weekend. And I'd be like, all right, well, I paid all this money for those. Like, I have to put them on TCG at this point because I can't move them. Mm -hmm. And then looking at market trends and stuff with like the old school bubble and seeing some of those mirrored in foil cards that's where i go i tend to be more on the investor side of it and less on the playability side of foils uh similar to masterpieces obviously like the invention series is like kerosene soaked in gasoline yeah Car those cards are insane because it's a type of thing that they're not going to do again until they do them again so for now they're definitely a good spot to park your money. And I like going more for the unique or something that's less likely to see print again, such as Shibari Bondage Tangle Wire as a prime example, because From the Vaults are dead. They're not doing those anymore. So I think literally all of the From the Vaults would be something that I'd be like, all right, I can park $20 in this whatever crappy FTV angel or dragons. Uh, look, here's a kill mouse dragon or whatever's in that thing. Yep. And I try to look for those and I try to be, all right, this is something I could see reasonably happening, such as with June two stakes or brink of madness or planar collapse. When I called that one out, I said, this is something I could see happening reasonably. I think odds are pretty good, and I'll put some money where my mouth is on that and try to invest in that. And it's a lot more art than science Yes. Uh, for me. And incidentally, that leads to me getting burned a little bit more on some of my foils, but I do have binders of pretty things that are never going to be worth any money. Yep. So I've got that going for me. Right now, I'm looking for another interesting uh, point. So uh, something else that I was doing for a while, uh, there was some argument in like I don't know six or so years ago that arbitrage from MKM into the US was not worth it at all and I just kind of staked my claim on the point that like it absolutely is and this is hard to see but left in my hand from an order from I think four or five years ago are three foiled debtors nails that at the time I pulled off MKM for 12 USD after shipping to my uh, my partner in Europe and then sending over one large bundle, so uh, customs on top of that. So $12.09 all said and told. At the time, they were sitting on TCG for 18 and right now they're down to about 
14 for the foil. And that was based entirely off of just looking purely at arbitrage numbers and popular cards in the format and less demand overall. Just because a card was popular at the time and it was at that moment in time when I looked and I hadn't done any historical research on it didn't mean that it was going to churn immediately. Uh, buy list opportunity for this wasn't too bad at the time. I think I can still get out at a profit, but this just speaks to like that naivety that I had at the beginning of this process for that arbitrage as well as kind of moving in on foil as a whole where I just needed to learn a method and kind of, you know, stick with it and just build a philosophy that works for me. One of the other things I do, and I think you do this as well, so we overlap here when it comes to timing, is standard rotation. So um, standard rotation up here is great for collection buys because everybody just liquidates. That's yeah. And I am very picky with my collection buys up here. And at standard rotation, I buy things like foil Thoughtseize from Theros and foil Swan Songs, foil Deathrite Shamans, Abrupt Decays, these multi-format staples. And then I have a long hold on a full 40 uh, return to Rav foil shocks. Yeah. And the only reason I'm going to come out ahead on some of those is because I bought at rotation. So everything was dirt cheap. If I was buying this while it was all kind of in standard and I had not done like my uh, regressions, then I would never have touched these, especially Deathrite Shaman, when that thing was like a $70 plus foil. Oh, yeah. It was in standard and modern at the time. When I got in, it was just it was uh, legacy only. So it was a really easy uh, pick up and flip. But that is also when I will spec on standard it, because I yeah. know I, I can get it cheap and things and I, have proven themselves. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the thing that's really key there is that that's proven that itself, that there is the opportunity there. And that's one of the things that... When I say I got burned on standard, I meant buying standard foils to sell during standard. Yes. Uh, if you wait until after rotation, when everyone's dumping for drafts of the new set or whatever. Whatever, yeah. Perfect, great, that's everything I need. Yep. Uh, I will give you 70% of your now mostly worthless cards, and we can go from there. Exactly. Uh, there, there are people everywhere that love to play foil standard, and I'll buy whatever I feel like I can use personally or that I think is worth the long-term hold because it was unique enough or good enough or uh, has a track record behind it and I think it's going to be there or I already see it uh, it's starting to come in modern and legacy what have you and, and so regarding timing I think that part is kind of key for both of us um, yeah moving on you know, what do we look for in a foil spec as I touched on in regards to that I, I like a spec that is eminently playable so that's why I picked up the debtors now that I flashed. Those were eminently playable at the time. Since then, things have come around and kind of pushed it out of the format a bit. It's not as good as it used to be. Things have changed in EDH. The format's kind of gotten faster, so to speak. And debtors now as a 7 CMC enchantment is quite slow. So I'm not, I'll probably be sitting on those until the end of time, the ones I have left foil and none, and I'll get out of them at a break even because I was able to extract them at a time where they were just really cheap uh, in arbitrage. But I like eminent utility. I don't like to have to guess. The only time I guess is when I'm buying a weird, like, full set of something. So at the 
uh, end of Theros Black as we're rotating out. People have gods to let go. So I'm not just going to sit there and pick Perforos and uh, pick Nylea and poo poo the rest. I'll buy all the gods because they're unique at that point. This is the first time we've seen them. And to me, having more is better than having less or none at all. There's arbitrage yeah. opportunity there. And sure enough, a lot of them did turn out to be bunk or they've been reprinted enough where they're not worth as much as they should have been. But overall, even buying low at standard, despite the fact that it might be uh, where they are finally recovering or even lower, it's fine because the ones that were worth, that had that pedigree, or you could see the uh, immediate opportunity at the time outweighs the cents on the dollar that like Mogus and Afara were. That's what I like. I think that's another area where we overlap as the and you're although I, I guess the way you define utility is different than how I define it. Mm -hmm. So I like utility, but the utility I look for is the eminent lack of reprintability. Okay. Yeah. Or the eminent power of the card in CEDH. And that's one thing that I recognize and acknowledge i should care about regular edh too because those prices are important yeah, yeah uh but and this is something i'll touch on with my pick in this episode i think cedh foils that are on the low end are so much better in terms of opportunity because that metagame is so concentrated and so hive mind that if it shows up on one stream for lab men spike feeders whoever all of a sudden, everyone wants it, and they want to try it, and yep. the card just explodes. And that's the type of thing that I look for in terms of playability utility. Yes. Other yeah. than that, like I said, it's the imminent lack of reprintability is what I go for. Yep, no, I, I, I like that, I understand that, and that's one of the reasons why I try and avoid things that don't really have standard appeal, at least not in the immediate future. Um, when I picked up the the Shocklands, my bet on those was that they're just not going to go down. I'm going to pick them up around Bialis price, and I should be able to get out at, at a break even no matter what. And, you know, it's also flashy if I want to throw down, you know, super hard and modern or something. And, and yeah. that's fine. One of the things I dislike trying to look at is Planeswalkers and whether or not a foil walker is really worth it. And you already touched on Chandra Torch of Defiance. And for me, specking on foil Planeswalkers is... Like, it feels like I'm always trying to jump on the grenade for somebody else, where it's like, all right, I'll pick this up because I have the ability to as a vendor, and I'm going to save somebody else the opportunity to just pick up this clunker, and it's going to sit there in their binder because I'm, I can churn it, like, you know, immediately. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, they're not all created equal. You know, do you want, like, a Johnny Goldmane in foil, or would you rather have the three CMC really aggressive one that people play? You know, would you rather have, like, Set Koth? Or would you rather have Set Soren Markov? And <clears throat> a lot of that comes down to utility, too. You know, there are obvious winners. Lily Vale, uh, Lily Vess, uh, Garuk Wildspeaker, JTMS. Chase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, JVP. All these are, like, obvious calls and obvious holds. Even Chandra TOD. That card is ridiculous. And it's just the lack of adoption that kind of makes it uh, illiquid 
but that also is what makes it difficult for me to want to move in on foil walkers. That said, alt art or um, alternative like acquisition method foil Mythic walkers. Mythic edition, that stuff. Well, no, not even that. Uh, dual deck Venser. Oh, yeah, uh, fair. Dual deck Koth. Like, those are great dual because. Yeah, yeah, because there's only one way to get those highly played planeswalkers. So you don't have to spend as much on the set foil, you get alternate art, and you get a foil at the same time. So there's like a little bit of give and take here when it comes to planeswalkers, in my mind. And I. I'm not all in on the foil set planeswalker. I would rather churn that immediately than save it for the long run. But yeah. when it comes to like some of the other acquisition methods, it can be lucrative for me if the utility is there. I would rather sit on like infinite uh, dual deck vencers than uh, a playset of foil lily veil. Like I because the EDH market will eat up that Venser over time, and I have to find the one Jund all format guy that doesn't already have four foil Lilianas in the version that he wants. Yeah, and, and I think it's important too. The thing about those dual decks is it is an affordable version of a foil card yep. with added liquidity, and that's another reason that those are ones that I'm actually comfortable picking up as well. Now, do I mind having like? Ah, foil Jace Bellerin from some set in a binder. No, it's not the worst. No. Like someone's gonna want it, yeah. and they'll. It's probably a guy that needs it for his pillow fort deck, and he's fine. You know, valuing it a dollar or two up. Cool, fine. But it's not something like you said that I want to dedicate, like I did, six slots in a booth to a foil of because, oh, I, I need it. No, I, I very much the same way. The stuff that I want to have is that alternative art type planeswalker. Uh, the one difference for me mm -hmm. that's kind of analogous to planeswalkers is I will take all of the pack foil gods I can ever get. Okay. Ever. Those things, like, out here, for whatever reason, sell like crazy. Planeswalkers, not so much. That's awesome. But especially after Return to Theros. Yep. Gods took off. Old ones, new ones. Doesn't matter if they were even a Theros set, like Corona, which oh, Starfoil, yeah. so yeah. whatever. That, another reason for that. But stuff like that just took off, and it's been absurd to see. So I'm, you know, obviously very happy for it. Mm -hmm. But gods are something that I will also always pick up whatever foils I can find of. Yeah, uh, I think that actually speaks to kind of like the last point I want to make before we touch on like uh, supplemental stuff is. Um, Gods, pack foil gods for me represent a price tag I'm not willing to uh, throw money at because moving them here is difficult. And I, re I like yeah. doing a lot of my work uh, locally. If I've got to go to buy a list, that's fine. So essentially I'm just arbitraging for locals because I have the opportunity to do so. And I'm not afraid to do it. Uh, that's still a thing here. People are afraid to mail cards. But yeah. I don't want to be sitting on a lot of foil gods because of how I have to operate financially. And it's always to buy a list. Never local. If I had more locals to work with or more locals that were interested, then yeah, I could start looking at like those medium ticket items, especially as they are like in standard. Buying new Heliod, which immediately had other format opportunities, I could have done something with that. 
had I had the opportunity to do that in person, you know? Yeah. And it's, I, I like that. It's different between us because that also Keith continues to touch on like the regionality of a lot of this and it comes, you know, our player yeah. base and who we work with and, and who we're trying to like help and serve essentially. Um, a quick uh, supplemental stuff. So we, we, you know, we talked briefly Corona Starfoils and we touched on that in the, in the historic stuff. I like, I think for both of us, when it comes to Starfoil, we'll, we'll pick it up at this point. It doesn't matter. Like Starfoils yeah. are proven they're going to hold. <laughs> so from there, we kind of move forward and we exist in a paradigm of you have set foils, you have pre-release promos that may or may not have alternate art, and then Cons of Tarkir hit, and I discussed already getting burned on the pre-release promos with the date stamp. All right. So eventually we move into uh, a timeline where we have set foils, we have pre-release promos, which is same art but stamp. We have uh, full art. You know, we're not eventually alt art and then like and not even just showcase yes exactly the, the showcase stuff or uh, alternative border and now we have etched in uh, commander legends and we'll have again old border foils in uh, time spiral too remember when they lost the technology to do that according to marrow yeah i know that's funny i do um and so when it comes to alt art stuff, the, the, these like supplemental methods of acquiring foils, mainly being showcased through collector's boosters because that's the easiest way to do it. Um, where do you stand on stuff like that? So I'm very much of the like, those qualify to me as masterpieces when it comes to showcase specifically. Okay. I stay away from masters things are hot garbage unless it's new art if it's new art it's a completely different story i when manamorphos tanked for masters i bought as many as i could find okay uh same with empty the warrens same with goblin goblin char belcher yes i got burned on goblin char belcher i'm still getting burned but manamorphos came up and empty did all right too yep uh, i other than that i try to stay away from them because i think we're at the oversaturation point showcase though i'll pick up those foils whenever i can similar to the alt art walkers from war yep. of the spark yep. if they're there i'm snagging them yeah uh i like the idea of some of the alt bar the alt border stuff in showcases as kind of the premiere version what uh tickles my fancy a little more is the etched and not just because of the look but because they started out well underpriced and kind of underserving yeah. the market like across the board um, there were some obvious standouts to like the ones that had a real price, but the majority of them were, were underpriced and underserved. I yeah. like that. Uh, showcase, similarly, for a while, things do stagnate. And there's some I like because of that, and some I don't because they already have a real price tag. I don't think they're going to get re reprinted, like you said, unless they're super generic, like Fabled Passage, which got hoisted real quick. Like... I would have a concern about the Triomes. I yeah. do not have a concern about Uro and Kroxa. Embercleave. I don't, like, that's where I am. So that's to fair. me, so I, I agree you gotta, uh, you gotta kind of treat it like the masterpieces and say, okay, this isn't going to get reprinted like this for a while. 
Yeah. But at the same time, I need to operate on some very specific avenues to ensure that if it does, I don't get, you know... Hoisted. Yep. And uh, Master's Foils, man, those are difficult. Some of them will look cool. Um, the Foil Karn Lib looked really neat from yeah. Modern Masters 2. It had this interesting, like, shadowing to it, so that made it kind of this approachable foil from that standpoint. But it's hard to want to get behind those sets with the way the foils just warp intrinsically. Yep. And I think that's kind of a danger overall to a lot of this, is you have to be careful with what you're picking up and how you're going to store it, especially in the long term. To the best of my knowledge, even the etched uh, curl, but they don't. if they don't curl as much, you can just slave them and you're okay. And... Uh, Chilcott linked an article on Twitter last week that basically expands the um, the silica bead method of how to like uncurl your foils. You basically just create your own little humidor to help with this. And that's also something that I keep in the back of my mind as I start looking at this stuff. Am I worried about my showcase uh, tour mods? Not really, because they're in a 1K that's stuffed full. If they warp, man, good luck. Uh, you know, I get, I get crushed on that until until I take care of it. But other than that, and the reprintability, I'm in on supplementals that aren't just dog to begin with, where it's almost like helpless. Yeah. From the vaults are almost helpless. Um, I think is it mo like Modern Masters one or two? Two, I think the one with the cardboard package. Those are helpless. Like, yeah. I want to dodge all that stuff. But uh, I'm all in on uh, low price and high utility supplemental cards. I'll be paying a lot of attention to Triumphs shortly. They're all on the rise, but unless we get some in the near future, I think it's going to be a good point in time to say, okay, here's the inflection, and now's the time to move in on showcase foils. I agree with that. I think especially some of the showcase foils, it seems like a lot of the EDH stuff especially is deflated along with set foils, despite the fact that it seems like that stuff has sped up. Yep. And specifically the cards that have showcase foils as well. And you noticed it probably more than any other set with a Corea because you had like four different showcase versions of some of those cards with the yeah. Godzilla frames and everything else. And the comic, so, the comic book stuff, yeah. Yeah, so I, that's that's one that's really interesting to me that I like pay special attention to is the stuff that I look at and I'm like, all right, this is like a blue-red Spells Matter card. So what if it's banned by the rules committee? Sheldon's head is so far up his ass, he's probably digesting his own tongue at this point. Yeah. People will play with it regardless. Yeah. And everybody you know, wants you... an otter. Yeah, otters are great. And then legendary squirrel. Well, yeah. squirrels are a meme, so get it. It's yeah. a legendary squirrel. Yeah. Oh, thanks, yeah. thanks, legendary squirrel, for making Earthcraft a million dollars. Oh my god! Among other things, nut collector. I'm waiting for chatter. The flashback spell. <laughs> like when, once that goes, that you know you're the living the best dream. Oh yeah, for sure. Is it acorn harvest? Yeah. No, chatter is the flashback spell. Acorn harvest is the one that goes in the land. Yep. Earthcraft, uh, Acorn yep. Harvest, Infinite Squirrels, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and foils are a weird beard, and it's like you you got to craft your own formula, and that's kind of why we wanted to tie a bow around this because there's a lot to think about in regards to the historics of a foil, in regards to the generations of foil and what's available out there, and then there's always lessons to be learned. You know what we've tried, succeeded, failed with. You know that these are lessons for us based on our circumstances, and it's all information to digest and move forward with you know what we do isn't going to work for everybody else but there's always the opportunity to just pick the methods that you like and kind of move forward overall do i think foil specking is lucrative i absolutely do do i agree with uh our first podcast guest Jer- or no it was like the third podcast guest jeremy Muir, when he said yeah. he hates foils because of what it does to the game financially and how hard it makes uh the vendor job absolutely I absolutely agree with that. Now, Wizards but, is making that as hard as humanly possible. Yep, but at the end of the day, they are a dwindling resource, so to speak. They are uh, less common than their non-foil counterparts, obviously. And if you're looking to kind of carve out a niche, fin- niche financially and look to sit on some things aside from reserve list or reserveless foils, star foils, like the... Not the cornerstones, but like the first iteration of everything is what what that represents then you know set all that stuff aside then you want to start looking at like playables variants things like that like yeah the normal stuff that's more science than art yes yeah absolutely Uh, and always remember there is a bulk foil price yes and you should probably be familiar with that if you're going to be uh, picking up foils from collections not not everything is worth a dime or a quarter. There's definitely nope. a four. It's like seven cents or something. Yeah. Uh, pick? Yes. Alright. You go. So yep. like I touched on it, I'm just seizing it right now. Yes. We're going. Uh, that I would be touching on this later when I said my pick. My pick this week is touching on a running theme for my last few picks. Aether Barrier Foil from Nemesis. Now before I get into this. This has the most adorable face, maybe, of any art in all of Magic. I just want to put them in my pocket. That has nothing to do with why I picked this card, though. So, the reason I picked this card is, one, it has imminent CEDH playability in a stack shell. Everybody loves stacks. Stacks is great. Don't think it's not. Second, there's a historical basis for this. So we're seeing a little bit of a surge in reserveless foils and foils, star foils in general. So if you pull up the MTG stocks graph, you can see that this card spiked in 2018, 2017, somewhere in there, which was about when we had a CEDH boom. So at that point, suddenly we skyrocket. Foil comes up to like 15, 20, 30 dollars. Uh, now, with you look at the stocks graph, and this is since, well, I picked this immediately after we recorded our last episode, which Reptar can verify. Yes. Uh, we were back to sub $10, and there were actually foils listed for around $5. I know because I bought them. Uh, I feel like based on this and what we're seeing with other star foils, there's a reason to believe that this will spike again, and we will see the floor settle at a higher number than before. Before, we were looking at about 2 to $3 a piece, and then yep. the floor settled at around 10 Well, that 
think we're going to see that again, and it may settle around 15 to 20, but I think that it's the type of thing that, yet again, stock or bond, you're not going to lose money on this. I think your turnaround might be a little bit quicker on this one. Because of the way it's worked in the past, where you see a couple months, maybe, of this plateau pricing before we settle back down into a new floor, you're looking at probably a one to two, maybe three-month timeline for when you can out this profitably to a buy list. Now, can you immediately turn it around and throw it up on like sick deals or some other group for a profit? Probably. There's going to be someone that wasn't aware the card existed and wants to get in on it before it goes up more. It's probably not going up more, but that guy's out there and he wants your cards. So that you may be able to get a little bit quicker on. But I think that generally you are looking at that like two to three month timeline for this, unless you want to hold for the next spike, which unfortunately, based on what we've seen, maybe three to four years. Yeah. Uh, the idea of picking up stuff like this, a foil that it hasn't been targeted yet, trying to get ahead, it, I like the idea of, um, and I wasn't like wholeheartedly... It's, and this wasn't in regard to the conversation that we had last week or even the pick. I wasn't wholeheartedly in the boat that like the reserve list spike is going to float. And then I was looking back at some trend tracking I've been doing and the amount of cards that have popped over the reserve list basically point to the fact that the entire reserve list is, ri- is rising. Frankenstein's monster finally went. You know, Anvil of Bow Garden is a several hundred dollar card right now. And we're still waiting for some low-hanging fruit, some very, like, chaff pieces to go, but the overall floor on the entirety of the reserve list is rising. And then to kind of uh, corroborate that, at end of day today, Ben Blywis posted a screenshot of a Google Sheet that he created for Star City Games attached to a specific page that he had created in Star City Page just to buy dual lands at higher than anybody else by end of day. He basically, before the bell rang, so to speak, throughout their buy list and is going fishing and people were discussing in the comments about the price of these cards and if this is going to be uh just for today and ben said no this is the new normal yeah and now i'm more inclined to agree based on what i saw last night from the trend tracking and ben blouse who's like been running around with his hair on fire on twitter for the last couple weeks trying to reprice all this stuff finally came out and said that he has enough data to call this as being like the new normal makes me want to makes me believe in this uh, a bit more and moving in on unique cards like this a, a bit more than i wanted to before so i think the float is there and the float is real all right timeline uh, i'm unsure because of that very hardy spike that we just saw but if it holds for a couple of weeks then i i believe you're you're absolutely right with the timeline. And I, I think it will. Yeah. I, I think one thing worth noting uh, about the new buy list prices that have been floated by SCG. Uh, so this near mid buy price is great. However, it is still inferior to the Chinese buy lists. Yes. But this is market. something that we're seeing when you talk about arbitrage, and we can touch on this in a future episode again. When vendors start flooding overseas to ship cards, places like Star City have to respond. 
anyways, that's an aside. Yep, so. no, absolutely. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct because Star City can't keep their stores stocked and can't support their client base if everything's flooding into the European or Asian market, depending, you know, which way the cards are flowing as we touched on. So, yeah. Um, the other thing is that I, I mentioned in our Discord is that by doing it at the bell, nobody has a chance to respond. So Star City basically gets like 16 to 18 hours of like unfettered access to this market until tomorrow morning when Card Kingdom can come in and raise their cash price. And it, it, it's it's all a bit hand wavy. Star City is the best buy prices, but some of the worst retail. It's similar to channels. Like if you're going to get 30% yeah. credit, cool. But your retail price is so much higher that it just doesn't work out numerically. But neither here yeah. nor there. Um, my pick for the week, you know, not too far off in price, not too far off uh, in Magic Timeline, is Exodus Code of Arms. Ah, uh, yes, the classic. Yes. Best. I don't. I like the art in this frame. It looks terrible in the new frame, but still the best flavor text. Goblin flavor text is always the best flavor text. Yeah. So uh, this has been a card I've been watching for a while, and you can see on the stocks graph, it plateaus forever, it pops a little bit, plateaus, and now we're coming back up. And a lot of this recent growth is prior to like call time announcements, so we didn't know how tribal, in essence, this set was going to be. And that is exactly what Code of Arms plays into. It is the mono tribe card, that's it. So when we get Maskwood Nexus, an artifact that fits into every tribe, Coat of Arms becomes a lot more interesting and a lot more sought after. So uh, generally, you know, finding itself in tribal decks that look to turn the creature sideways, Coat of Arms represents essentially a static kill condition. The only uh, tribe that doesn't need this is Slivers, and I'll touch on that in a moment. So unlike Crater of Behemoth and similar cards that we've touched on, Coat of Arm requires nothing more than resolution to provide a continued threatening board presence. So Crater of Behemoth, uh, Thunderhoof, uh, Baloth, uh, Ibex, things like that generally require you to either cast them and then it's a one-off or assume they live into combat. Coat of Arms, straight threatening. So, as of right now, when you look on Wreck, and I'll bring this up, you know, it serves smaller tribes in terms of average creatures, uh, in terms of average creature size. You notice you're not seeing dragons on here, and you'll see uh, goblins, humans, uh, zombies on here. I, it's interesting that Sliver, Sliver Legion is on here as a general that this is paired with, because generally speaking, this is a budget option to Sliver Legion. But, as I mentioned, Demon's not here, Dragon's not here, Angel's not here, because those creatures are generally so large, they don't need the extra help. Okay, so as we get support for these underserved tribes, including things like Squirrels, Saplings, and Wizards, which are also popping, we'll see continued growth in cards like Coat, because they're reliable and comparatively cheap finishers. Yeah. Also, being color agnostic, pretty dope. Referring back to the timeline, it's just been a perennially slow gainer, but this card is now turbocharged because of Masswood Nexus. My expectation yep. is that this begins to burn pretty brightly shortly after the call time releases in the rearview window, so maybe in about a month or two. While the Exodus art has been repurposed for multiple print runs, 
it remains the only version with the original artifact border and the only one in black border. 7th edition art is unique to 7th edition, but is white border. So that's a little standoffish for a lot of people. And 7th edition is also a little more expensive right now than Exodus. And I don't know if the print runs at the end of the day are the same for those two sets. We kind of lose numbers early to that. But yeah. So that's kind of whatever. Uh, so my expectation is you'll be able to out this to buy a list of profit in about six months, especially with support from Strixhaven, the D&D set, and Innistrad, uh, Jacob V. Edward. It's all tribal from here out, essentially. And you might look at Strixhaven and say, okay, well, what are we getting there? That's going to be a wizard set, most likely. So that serves that tribe. You can actually kill somebody with wizards finally instead of like milling them out or just pissing them off by countering everything. D&D is going to bring you the additional like rogues that we're kind of missing right now from, from rogue strategies, which show up if you don't look at rec, if you look at MTG decks on arena, oh, sorry, moto, people are playing rogue EDH for some yeah. reason with coat of arms. So you get, you know, rogues and wizards and um, warriors. Everything's going to be there. You're going to get humans among those. And then I mentioned Innistrad. We know that set's going to be split between two tribes already. And neither of these tribes have great ways to end the game outside of like their own power without this card. You can sit there and peck away at people all you want with vampires, but they're not that great at going wide, though they do go pretty tall thanks to uh, Markov. Code of Arms allows a different kind of gameplay, and depending on what we get in the set, it might slide into there. Werewolves is just a super underserved tribe next to squirrels and saffirlings. So this is kind of, if they get a boost in, uh, in that part of the Innistrad set, then we can see the slide in there. And this is just, you know, everybody's looking at Maskwood Nexus, and this is in the shadows. So if you want to make your money, this is where you look. Like, everybody knows about Maskwood Nexus. That's obvious. Yeah. Code of Arms, kind of holding strong in the background right now. I, I think this is also another one of those stock and bond situations where this card's not going anywhere. When it gets reprinted, it doesn't just tank the value out of nowhere. It's no, still no. the old border OG coat of arms, and there's always yeah. an amount of like financial utility to that fact, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that you know even if you you know you're not going like thirty deep, just having five or six of these along like in your assembly of binders or case or whatever is never bad. Someone's always going to want this card wherever you go, and I think that's just always a positive. So, yep, uh, I, I like it. Yeah, absolutely. This is you know a casual card through and through, and this is mm -hmm. one of those cards we talked on before. You put it in a case, and somebody's going to walk by and go, "Oh yeah, that that's the name of that card that I needed for my random, yeah. you know, uh, Homerid deck, Lizard Tribal, yeah. whatever." Exactly. You know, it's that kind of card. And it has the price tag, you know, to, to move along. The the nice thing is that, you know, our, the delta is shrieking, uh, shrinking, not shrieking, between Vialist and Market. And the Exodus copy remains one of the most sought after by Card Kingdom, short of the Mystery Booster version. Yep. No, they're looking for 25 Exodus and then 55, 55 Mystery Booster versions. So there's demand for this card. It, population shrinking across tcg player and card kingdom bias is uh, also the amount they're paying now and the number they're looking for also increased from when i picked it to now so it's not like you're ever going to swing and miss on this card and i really doubt it's coming back into standard they've done it a couple times and it just never works out always in a core set and it just farts out like nobody cares yeah. this card costs five it's ridiculous in standard like expecting 
Expectations that people play this card in standard is silly. And then it just takes a slot and people get mad about it when they open it limited. You're like, all right, cool. A dead rare. I can do nothing with this. Like, yeah. It, it's it's one of those hidden gems yeah. financially that you're never really happy about unless you're a vendor. Then you're always happy about it. Yes, exactly. Well, I think that's going to be it for this week. Um, we'll probably continue to field questions about foil specking because this is a very deep topic and as I mentioned, you know, everybody has their own methods and building a successful model can take time and can take patience. So if you have any questions uh, in regards to, you know, uh, specking on foils, or you just want to talk a little more about some of the stuff that we've picked up, you know, why we picked up certain cards or uh, a little more in-depth conversation about our methods, feel free to hit us up. Uh, you know, you can, uh, tweeted us at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter. You can hit up each of us on Twitter. I'm at uh, Haldarm Reptar. You're yeah, Thirsty Sizzler. And then you know you can find us. Uh, the cast is on Patreon and Facebook, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, uh, Apple Podcast, Apple. Google Podcast. I think that's it. I think that's it too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Even if we move to like Last FM, I don't think we get broadcast. I don't think we go to SoundCloud on Last FM. So I think no. we're good. I think we got them all. If only. Yeah. But uh, that is going to be it for this week. And I'm sure we'll talk about foils at some point in time in the next year or two. Yeah, so, definitely. Well, we will see you guys next week.